I come to them with the award letter. Remember, I told you that's liquid gold. The award letter. Before you guys got like into a relationship, relationship, or was it the relationship first and then you guys teamed up together? So it was the relationship first, and um, you know, part of what brings us together um, are our commonalities. So we both have an interest and a background in Asia. And that's the region that we were working. So we were in different offices, but the same region. And so we both had, um, so I was, uh, I lived in Japan from the ages of two to six. And I spoke Japanese when we lived there. And then we moved back to the States after that. So I had this, you know, my like, my like pivotal, my growing years were in Japan. So I had this, yeah. So I had this really strong connection. What were you doing in Japan? My parents, my pa- my dad's Venezuelan, so okay. my mom met my dad in Fort Lauderdale, moved with him to Venezuela. I was born there, and they converted to Buddhism, a Buddhism that the sect is um, it's the Nichiren uh, Shoshu Buddhism in, in, from Japan. So they had friends who had already gone to like explore this Buddhism more in Japan. And my parents were trying to figure out how to get there. My dad found a school that did, um, had a master's in architectural photography. So he enrolled in the school. He like learned Japanese, enrolled in architectural photography school, and they just took us. Well, I was just me at the time. So yeah, my, my mom, I'm two and my mom goes halfway across the world and, they, they like adventure. That's my super parents. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and you learned English and Japanese. I mean, you were obviously old enough yes. to already know English, but you learned Japanese at a very young age. Yes. Yeah, so Japanese, Spanish, and English were my first three languages, which was interesting when I moved back because I moved to St. Petersburg and um, I my second grade teacher <laughs> tried to hold me, no, my first grade, my first grade teacher tried to hold me back because she said that knowing so many languages made me slow, <laughs> which, you know, that's, it was 1986. That's okay. Um, but my mom pushed back and I ended up in gifted class instead. <laughs> so, um, Teach their own. Exactly. <laughs> but ever since then, I was, you know, when we got to the agency, you know, I, I want, I had Spanish I was like, I can pick Japanese right back up. I had enough of it. And that was my interest. And then Andy has Chinese. And his um, he has a degree in uh, East Asian studies. And so we had this common interest in that region and in working the targets in that region. So it was natural for us to eventually end up working the same targets. I don't think we were ever at the same time in the same office, but that doesn't mean that we weren't working the same targets, if that makes sense. Like, um, for example, they'll have a regional office that will do Asia, but then they'll have another office that does a subject matter like counterproliferation, mm-hmm. right? So you can be have two people, one in a regional office, one in counterproliferation, and then they overlap because counterproliferation happens everywhere in the world. So that's how it ended up happening. And where are you guys at at this point? Like, where is the CIA headquarters? 
like that you guys where's the building that you guys are working at so we were in langley at the main headquarters yeah okay yeah and we were there for quite some time before you know doing tdys and things like that so and how long was it before you guys actually went out into the field and went to asia together so we and where did you guys go to china uh we i I you don't can't think, say? Yeah, we can't say the exact location. Oh, Asia. Okay. <laughs> Asia, okay. Um, but we did a number of TDYs separately. Um, so we had started traveling for the agency almost as soon as we joined. Oh, okay. Right, like he, him going, you know, I would go one country, he would go another country d- at different times as the office, as the mission dictated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, eventually I, I knew that I wanted to be assigned overseas, um, for a longer period of time. So I started, you know, just putting a little bug in my manager's ear, like I will go literally anywhere. Um, I was like, Ulaanbaatar, I don't care. Like just send me overseas. Um, I wanted the excitement of being in the field because it's the work is different, right? Like headquarters work is slower field work. Like you are on the ground real time, like stuff happens, you know, like, um, where we were, there was a, like a small terrorist attack while we were assigned there, you know, and I'm like, it's action like stuff is happening real time like i'm working with the foreign service there um you know it's just incredible so we i think we were together i think we were together three years um before we were sent out for a long assignment and that was it was amazing what is it about about Asia and those cultures that excite you or interest you? So I think a lot of it has to do with my childhood. Just the fact that I, because my first memories are of Japan mm-hmm. and because my parents are Buddhist. So even when we came back, that culture continued. Um, it's just comfortable for me. I like so I, I definitely feel American. I am definitely Americanized, but I also have this very strong, like I understand the, the culture of putting your community before yourself, which is very Asian, right? Like Americans mm. are very independent. Um, you usually put yourself before others. But in Asia, like when, like when coronavirus started, that's the only three ways, the only three reasons why somebody wouldn't buy from you. So with this dollar truck, here's, oh my gosh, because I didn't know why. I, I figured I was doing it because, you know, we just kept, like, let them taste test it, right? Mm-hmm. But in this way, I can identify, well, they can identify, oh, this is a good fit. Because in their head, they don't they don't know if it's a good fit or not. Mm-hmm. But for a dollar, um, a dollar. They could do it. They can see the value because, all right, for seven days, you're going to get a a freaking conference for a week. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, wow, I have the money Mm -hmm. because even after that, it's only $79. 
But they'll say they could be able to compare. Oh, well, for the value, for sure, seventy nine bucks is nothing. Done. That was the dopest commercial we've ever given. <laughs> so go to the morning meetup. <laughs> Golly, I love this interview. Go to themorningmeetup.com. I can't wait to see you in the morning. Okay, Spec, I got to ask you, um, before you give us something deep on the closeout, um, I like to make predictions on, predictions on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I want to know where you see yourself in the next five to 10 years so that I can watch this interview five to 10 years from today and say, mm. yo, Spec said he was going to do this. And look, he actually did it. Mm. It's actually dope. I like that. In five years. Five to ten. Five years. My school is definitely going to be one of the most talked about schools on the planet. Mm. Is one thing. Second thing is in five years I'm going to have some major product wins. What does that look like? Products that everybody, at least one of them that everybody has to use. Like, like right now, everybody... Like the passport joint? Like, like, is that what you think? Like, similar. Yeah, something like that. Like, something that, like, I need this. Like Uber, people need that. You need Uber. Come on, Uber. Gotta have Uber. Amazon. Like I need. I need Amazon. I need that. It's gonna be mm. at least one thing that I create that the people will need, mm. and that's gonna be my moment. I talked about. That's going to be your moment. Five to 10 years. That's going to be the moment. I love it. I love it. You don't even know what it is yet. I might have it already. Do you have it? I might have it already. Do you think you, is it like something that you're thinking of, like that you're working on that you think you got? Or you're just saying, in my life, there's something that I'm missing, that I don't see just yet. I think I have it. I'm working on something that's going to disrupt the world in terms of putting money into the black communities Hmm. for ownership. Can I be a part of that? You said your Close, ass, bro. bro. You, 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 I'm going to be consistent, too. I'm going to be consistent. <laughs> you already my man, so. <laughs> yeah, but listen, you will be a part of it, though. Mm. You will be a part of it. Um, and 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 this is, this is one thing that I talked about earlier. It's called Social Seed, where... We're going to have it where people get to actually have ownership in products, viral products, big products, 
products that's killing it that they would never get the they would never get the opportunity. When you try to do you know when you try to invest, you gotta become an accredited investor. Right. You know what right. that means? You yeah. gotta have over two hundred thousand dollars or and it doesn't even count your house. So if you got a million dollar house, still loan matter. So it's either two hundred thousand personally or three hundred thousand, which your spouse included, or over a million dollars in net worth. What average? What average? So if you see a good deal that you can literally take advantage of, you as an intellectual can't even take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Because they have systems in place for us not to take advantage. Because guess what? We all ain't got that. You know what's so crazy? And not even too long ago, Obama finally made it to a point where um, where um, you can create smaller crowdfunds. He created some bill mm-hmm. that kind of unlocked it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Not yet, but you know, like he created because it was it, it's like illegal. But now, I think it's um, or he either it's something where like the little guy can get into it. Somebody's going to comment and be like, "David, you're an idiot." But yes, but no, that's this is the point I'm making. Is like they put things in place to make sure we don't get what we deserve. Like, why I got to be a credit and investor? Yeah. You know, it's like, I know it's little other little reasons people going to come up with. Oh, no, it's because it is. No, no. I feel in my heart, it's so certain people don't get into certain plays mm-hmm. to get to where they need to get to. It's like the music industry. Whoever was the puppet at the time and parody accounts, Cat Williams, Will Ferrell, Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, Kevin Hart, I was literally creating parody accounts. I took that same formula and creating an agency with it where I can do that same exact thing, not only for celebrities and parody accounts, but for celebrities, parody accounts for myself and then the average everyday normal person and helping them build their social media channel. So so I, I, I want to talk about two things. One... The Grumpy Cat and the parody accounts, because I, I don't quite understand those, but the mm. Grumpy Cat, how mm. did you make a viral creature? I don't understand. Yeah, a viral, a viral pet. A so, basically, so that, so that the, the cat is called Grumpy Cat, mm-hmm. right? The real name is Tatar. That's the real name, Tar. It's a female cat. I seen the cat, and I was like, yo, this gonna go. And I created the first meme. What do you mean? You saw the cat like at somebody's I, house? Or? I, no, I literally seen it on the internet. Seen the cat. I was like, yo, this is going to hit. At the time, and, and you know what? I lived my whole life in 80-20 rule. I do 80% of what works and I test that 20%. And then usually that 20% is usually what bring you 80% of the results. So I did the same thing. So I was focusing on Cat Williams, Will Ferrell, and Angelina Jolie, 
Jim Carrey. I had all these different accounts that was like blowing up on social media. So the Grumpy Cat was just like a test project. I wasn't even like serious. Seen the cat, created the memes, started the, started the Twitter page, and freaking it just blew up like crazy. So you've seen a cat on the internet and you say, I'm going to make this cat go viral. Mm-hmm. How did you make that happen? Just basically doing all of my strategies. It was like back then you had the retweet strategy. So it was like a bunch of meme pages, right? That was all building from scratch. And we all create like, now we do telegram groups. Back then it was like little DM chat, like chats that we had. And we used to just like, yo, we're going to do five retweets and then we're going to do a shout out. Five retweets, then a shout. So you get a little sample of what the posts are. And then you do the shout out at the end. I was up like 20 hours a day doing that all freaking day. Why? What's the point? Now, let me get to it. So, you know a guy named Maddie J? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Maddie J (laughs) called me up and he was like, yo, Spec, you can make money off of tweeting. So that's what started make that that's what made me start putting focus on it. Cause I was like, yo, this is it. Mm-hmm. This is how I make money. Mm. And I started building the accounts up because the more money I was, the more money I could make, it was based upon how many followers I can gain. Okay. So I started growing as many followers as possible. That's what made me start creating massive parody accounts. And I started scaling horizontally. And I started taking all of these accounts and I started buying real estate, digital real estate. I started buying accounts on top of me growing accounts. And I used those accounts to now grow these accounts. So now Grumpy Cat, as I'm creating these, these memes and everything like that, and just making it real funny with the little mean mug face. And it just, and I put it on autopilot. I literally wasn't even worried about the cat. It was just going, like I had it, everything scheduled out. I had the page going. I, I had like just normal retweets going out. Mm-hmm. And I went back to it and it went from 30,000 followers. I came back 30 days later. It had like 300,000 followers. Dang. Like in 30 days. And I wasn't even paying it no attention. So at that point, I started paying it attention. I was like, oh, this about to go. So that's when I... With Maddie, when he was saying you can make money off tweeting, I still don't know how to make money off tweeting. Okay, so it was a a website called mylights.com. And off this website, mylights.com, you do traffic acquisition, which basically means that I'm going to send traffic to the website and sell ads against it. Mm. So people are bidding in real time for banner placements on the website. And once we send the traffic, which is from little links, we might say, yo, six, six ways to know your man is cheating on you. Click the link below. Boom. They click the link. They go to go rush to learn how they know if they man cheating on you. <laughs> and we got ads on that. We make money. At that point, I was making like three to five thousand dollars a day. 
passive. Really? Passive. It was a passive income. Because once I figured out the formula, I put it on autopilot. I start automating everything. And that's how Grumpy Cat took off because it was automated. All the rest of my accounts is automated. So I was running like, I was running like 30 accounts Mm. all at one time, posting at least like 10 tweets a day. Viral content. It just took off. Yeah, and then I realized that I can do that. I had that skill set. And I was like, well, celebrities already got the followers. All I got to do is do a partnership. I utilize my skill set on growing millions of followers on Twitter and transition to Facebook because now Mm. Facebook took over. Facebook was now the new way to make money because Twitter kind of like took a dive. What year is this around about? This was around, I think, like 2010. Girl. And it, it just took off. It took off like crazy on Facebook because Facebook algorithm. Damn, nigga, fuck you. Didn't think y'all gonna scare me and tell me about what y'all gonna do to me. You'll rape my mama. That's me and fuck you, Muslim, nigga. You niggas been pedophile for the longest. You niggas been pedophile as long as your religion been in existence, nigga. You niggas been fucking babies and boys and goats and, 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 and queers as long as Islam been in religion, bitch. I, I used to be one of you niggas. And I, and I refused to stop eating pork. So I said, fuck you niggas. Because I, listen. I sold barbecue four years ago. And the Muslim niggas used to come through playing like they can taste pork. So one day, I cut the motherfucking chopped beef with pulled pork and served it to Muslim niggas, unbeknownst to them. They didn't know they was eating pork. They were chewing that motherfucking pork. Them motherfucking Muslim can't tell when they taste the motherfucking pork. So I sold them niggas pork for all summer long. Yeah, nigga, now sue me. Yeah, I sold pork till I cut the chopped beef with pulled pork all summer long and not one goddamn Muslim could tell the difference because all them bitches is sneaking and eating pork. Or if they ain't eating pork, they suck pussy so they taste buds is thrown off to the pork. Yeah, them niggas, I, I feel good sneaking and selling them niggas $10 chopped beef sandwiches with that pulled pork cut up in it, nigga. Straight disrespecting you, nigga. Yeah, get mad about that, nigga. I did that five years ago. Bitch ass nigga. Yeah, go try to skirt me on the internet. All you niggas trying to skirt me on the internet. Catch a plane, nigga, and show up in person and make everybody in the city say, say, them niggas out of New York City looking for you, nigga. Say, it's the niggas out of California asking about you. Do that, nigga, bad motherfucker. Make Farrakhan have a million man march down here. He ain't done nothing in a while, no way, for he getting too old anyway. Yeah, he getting too old. And Facebook don't want to hear the motherfucker. Y'all don't know what to do. You can't listen to him. 
Yeah, we sick of that old nigga anyway. We want to hear from NBA young boy. Don't nobody want to hear shit from Farrakhan. We want to hear from Fujiano. We don't want to hear shit from no goddamn Muslim, nigga. You nigga can't rap. <laughs> yeah, you nigga stick to providing security at the funerals and, and shaking down rappers. But don't nobody want to hear shit no nigga talking about thumping no Quran. Nigga, we want to hear from Lil Baby. We don't want to hear from you bitch ass Muslim nigga. So shut up, Farrakhan. Don't go inside and talk. Don't come out here and talk. It's a new day, Farrakhan. And don't nobody want to hear no shit about no spaceship go come rescue all us niggas. If a spaceship come right now, I ain't getting on no motherfucking spaceship with no Muslim niggas. I don't trust no Muslim. Mother didn't trust you niggas. I don't trust no nigga that don't eat bacon. And all our life, we was trained and brought up to eat bacon. Any nigga don't eat bacon and suck pussy is an oxymoron to me. Period point blank. I nigga gonna give up bacon instead of putting his motherfucking head between the whole leg and suck up pussy. Nigga, fuck you, nigga. Now all you niggas do it. All you Muslim niggas do it. Go quit the pole and suck the pussy. You stupid. You dumb. You ignorant. Fuck you. And fuck your religion, nigga. Yeah, nigga, it's funny to me. It's funny to me. <laughs> yeah, and I don't believe none of you niggas is bad enough to come do nothing to me and let the world see that y'all pussies to the white boy. Y'all didn't do nothing for Tamir Rice. Y'all didn't do nothing for Breonna Taylor. You bitch-ass niggas, Muslim niggas, didn't do nothing for Breonna Taylor. Y'all didn't do nothing for Eric Garner. Y'all let the white boy choke the big old nigga out. The big old nigga got his hands up. He's supposed to be throwing elbows. Get off me, nigga. Bigger than he was, he let the little bitty white boy jump on his back. Them ain't the kind of nigga we are down here. Them ain't the kind of niggas we are. We ain't just laying now. George Floyd is in Indianapolis. He just laid there and let the nigga put his knee on his neck. Nigga, fishes flop out of water. You ever seen a fish when you get him in the boat? He flopping like a motherfucker. He want to get back in the water. Fuck, that nigga didn't want to live. Don't fiend that nigga. That's a dope fiend, ain't it? The nigga died with fentanyl in the system. And the best thing could have happened to him is for him to die. The nigga left his daughter 20 million. That nigga could have lived to be 100 years old. He wouldn't have been able to leave his daughter 20 million. He couldn't have never been able to leave his pretty little daughter 20 million. They done that baby a favor. He wasn't shit. The nigga was in and out of jail. The nigga kicked in a door, boom. That nigga kicked in a motherfucking door. And put a gun to a black woman's belly while she was pregnant, robbing them. How you know that ain't his fate? He wasn't trying to redeem that. He went to making porn with white bitches. The nigga was a porn star. What's like this? So, let me tell you something, Stack Five. 
basketball playing ass nigga. Big old tall nigga. Fuck your brother, nigga. And fuck you too, nigga. Say, listen, if he was your brother or he was your nigga, what in the fuck that nigga was doing downtown in Indianapolis with a fake $20 bill? You must have loved that nigga that much. Nigga, I got some people I can go get $20 for, nigga. And I ain't got to go try to pass no $20 bill with no dope fiend nigga and no dope fiend bitch. That Head out as needy, you know what I'm saying? So most of the time, that's what people... Like if it's a street guy, they looking for if they got bags and they looking for niggas to sign, they looking for stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? So on the other end, as far as labels, they more look for younger shorties who they can kind of fuck over. You know what I'm saying? That's the new game right now. When you too smart, they don't really be wanting too much to deal with you because it's like you too smart. <laughs> But we can get this little 17, 16, 15 year old nigga that we can blow him up big and really check a bag off his ass because he don't know nothing about nothing. Fifty thousand dollars is like five hundred thousand dollars to him, a million dollars to him. You know what I'm saying? Get his ass a few little chains and then shit, let him do a show. But we gonna make majority of all the money off his this, off that, this, that. They basically just sucking the motherfucker dry, but they're going to make them super, super famous. You know what I'm saying? So that's why you see a lot of people that was real famous that's younger, not real, real rich. They don't be really rich. You know what I'm saying? You just be like, damn, I thought this person was like rich, rich. But nah, because the labels is getting rich as fuck off this person, but they spoon feeding them. You know what I mean? So... You just gotta have your paperwork in order. You gotta have your management in order. You gotta have your account in order. You have to have your lawyer on retainer. You know what I'm saying? You have to, um, you gotta have, if you ASCAP and uh, BMI shit together, you know what I'm saying? And it's basically just about. Nigga, fuck you, nigga. Think y'all gonna scare me and tell me about what y'all gonna do to me? You'll rape my mama. That's been fuck you, Muslim, nigga. You nigga been pedophile for the longest. You nigga been pedophile as long as your religion been in existence, nigga. You nigga been fucking babies and boys and goats and, 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 and queers as long as Islam been in religion, bitch. I, I used to be one of you niggas, and I and I refused to stop eating pork. So I said, "Fuck you, niggas." Cause I, listen, I sold barbecue four years ago, and the Muslim niggas used to come through, playing like they can taste pork. So one day, I cut the motherfucking chopped beef with pulled pork and served it to Muslim niggas, unbeknownst to them. They didn't know they was eating pork. They were chewing that motherfucking pork. Them motherfucking Muslims can't tell when they taste the motherfucking pork. So I sold them nigga pork for all summer long. Yeah, nigga, now sue me. Yeah, I sold pork till I cut the chopped beef with pulled pork all summer long and not one goddamn Muslim could tell the difference. Because all them bitches is sneaking and eating pork. Or if they ain't eating pork, they suck pussy so their taste buds is thrown off to the pork. 
Yeah, them there. I, I, I felt good sneaking and selling them niggas $10 chop beef sandwiches with that pulled pork cut up in it, nigga. Straight disrespecting you, nigga. Yeah, get mad about that, nigga. I did that five years ago. Bitch ass nigga. Yeah. Go try to skirt me on the internet. All you niggas trying to skirt me on the internet. Catch a plane, nigga, and show up in person and make everybody in the city say, say, them niggas out of New York City looking for you, nigga. Say, it's the niggas out of California asking about you. Do that, nigga, bad motherfucker. Make Farrakhan have a million man march down here. He ain't done nothing in a while, no way, for he getting too old anyway. Yeah, he getting too old. And Facebook don't want to hit a motherfucker. Y'all don't know what to do. You can't listen to him. Yeah, we sick of that old nigga anyway. We want to hear from NBA young boy. Don't nobody want to hear shit from Farrakhan. We want to hear from Fujiano. We don't want to hear shit from no goddamn Muslim, nigga. You nigga can't rap. Yeah, you niggas stick to providing security at the funerals and, and shaking down rappers. But don't nobody want to hear shit no nigga talking about thumping no Quran. Nigga, we want to hear from Lil Baby. We don't want to hear from you bitch ass Muslim nigga. So shut up, Farrakhan. Don't go inside and talk. Don't come out here and talk. It's a new day, Farrakhan. And don't nobody want to hear no shit about no spaceship go come rescue all us niggas. If a spaceship come right now, I ain't getting on no motherfucking spaceship with no Muslim niggas. I don't trust no Muslim. Mother didn't trust you niggas. I don't trust no nigga that don't eat bacon. And all our life, we was trained and brought up to eat bacon. Any nigga don't eat bacon and suck pussy is an oxymoron to me. Period point blank. I nigga gonna give up bacon instead of putting his motherfucking head between the whole leg and suck up pussy. Nigga, fuck you, nigga. And all you niggas do it. All you Muslim niggas do it. Go quit the pole and suck the pussy. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're ignorant. Fuck you. And fuck your religion, nigga. Yeah, nigga, it's funny to me. It's funny to me. <laughs> yeah, and I don't believe none of you niggas is bad enough to come do nothing to me and let the world see that y'all pussies to the white boy. Y'all didn't do nothing for Tamir Rice. Y'all didn't do nothing for Breonna Taylor. You bitch-ass niggas, Muslim niggas, didn't do nothing for Breonna Taylor. Y'all didn't do nothing for Eric Garner. Y'all let the white boy choke the big old nigga out. The big old nigga got his hands up. He's supposed to have been throwing elbows. Get off me, nigga. Bigger than he was, he let the little bitty white boy jump on his back. Them ain't the kind of nigga we are down here. Them ain't the kind of nigga we are. We ain't just laying now. George Floyd is in Indianapolis. He just laid there and let the nigga put his knee on his neck. Nigga, fishes flop out of water. You ever seen a fish when you get him in the boat? He flopping like a motherfucker. He want to get back in the water. Fuck, that nigga didn't want to live. Don't fiend that nigga. Fat and all in the system. That's a dope fiend, ain't it? 
The nigga died with fentanyl in the system. And the best thing could have happened to him is for him to die. The nigga left his daughter 20 million. That nigga could have lived to be 100 years old. He wouldn't have been able to leave his daughter 20 million. He couldn't have never been able to leave his pretty little daughter 20 million. They done that baby a favor. He wasn't shit. The nigga was in and out of jail. The nigga kicked in a door. Boom. That nigga kicked in a motherfucking door. And put a gun to a black woman's belly while she was pregnant. Robbing them. How you know that ain't his fate? He wasn't trying to redeem that. He went to making porn with white bitches. The nigga was a porn star. With white bitches. So, let me tell you something, Stack Five. Basketball playing ass nigga. Big old tall nigga. Fuck your brother, nigga. And fuck you too, nigga. Say, listen. If he was your brother, or he was your nigga, what in the fuck that nigga was doing downtown in Indianapolis with a fake $20 bill? You must have loved that nigga that much. Nigga, I got some people I can go get $20 for, nigga, and I ain't got to go try to pass no $20 bill with no dope fiend nigga and no dope fiend bitch. That You know what I'm saying? Y'all see how icy a nigga is, though, man. When I want to look at myself, man, I just look at myself in the mirror, though, man. You know what I'm talking about? Make sure I look that. I got to look presentable. You hear me? So I look at myself. I got to make sure everything on point, man. You know what I'm talking about? And I cool. I see. I got my feet. I got my feet out of everything, folks. You feel me? I ain't capping. I'm back here, though, man. You know what I'm saying? I wish they had a look. And if I get hungry, like, I'm I'm down there finna go get me some root crisps or something, right? So what I do, right, these, these, these same way, these the same thing that come on a plane. So, you know what I'm saying? You whoa, you feel me? I put my root crisps right here. Stop blowing. You feel me? I put the root crisps right here. Why the seat massager? You hear me? And go crazy. <laughs> oh, I ain't faking. But yeah, this is what we do though, man. You know what I'm saying? I got the headphones in there. If you if you wanna if y'all wanna join me one of these days, you know what I'm saying? I hop in the car with me. We out of here, man. You know what I'm talking about? This is spaceship gang. We ain't doing no faking. Oh yeah, show the teeth. We ain't doing no faking. Yeah, I ain't capping. You hear it? There's a remote back in here though, man. We ain't doing no capping. Done. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Exactly. You know what messages do you be trying to get out there? Oh, uh, right now, homie, on the internet, I'm all I'm all character, right? I'm all character and entertainment. <coughs> Excuse me. In real life, uh, I really work with children, and I ain't got to be a character, right? The character just expanded my platform. So, uh, 10 years I've been working in the community. Nigga, now I'm just, uh, now I'm like what they call, I'm retiring. I'm burnt out. <laughs> now, uh, 
I'm transitioning from being a community guy to entertainment character, YouTube, uh, comedian, and while I'm doing this, connecting people to programs as I travel from city to city. Uh, and people like yourself, hey man, you know anybody work with youth programs? Here I got the youth program. So somebody interview me, homie, they don't just get a, a interview. They get a guy that can give you youth program to help this person over here. Uh, we got a trucking company, you know, somebody with a trucking, you know, so uh, so now, homie, right now, I'm just playing for the for the movie deal I done got. Uh, so this shit done went Hollywood and, 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 and entertainment and celebrity now. So uh, fuck the community, my people shit. Nigga, I did it for 10 years. I'm tired. I'm ready to retire. <laughs> Let another motherfucker take over. Plus, motherfucker like Malcolm X. Martin Luther King, them niggas died broke with that community shit. <laughs> Everybody talking that my community shit. Undergraduate and graduate institution. We should be indifferent to where you went to school. We should only care about how you ranked. Because it's so if it's so devastating to be anything in in anything other than the top third of your class, I don't want you. If you weren't in the top third of your class, right? Now I'm being playful a little bit here. But the point is that we have, do you see how we have allocated our strengths and our, our, our notion of what is an advantage and what is a disadvantage are allocated in an irrational way? We've, we have, we've become obsessed with the advantages of prestige, but we have not paid attention to the disadvantages of prestige. And that's a mistake. Some people seem to get motivated by being surrounded by people smarter than they are, right? So that's well, not, sort of... Not economics PhDs, apparently. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I would have... I, intuitively, I agree with you, yeah. right? I want to find reasons to like elite institutions. All my friends went to elite institutions. Should I have children? I would want them to go to elite institutions. You know, we're all powerfully... But the problem is that when we go and systematically look for those advantages, we can't find them. So there's a long, I don't go into my book, but there's a long and rich tradition um, in economics um, in which people hunt for the value of an, elite, of an elite education. And they can't find it, right? So we know that uh, it is the case that a student who goes to Harvard earns money, more money in the course of their career than a student who goes to the University of Tennessee. Okay, but that doesn't tell you anything at all. What you really need to do is to find two students, both of whom go to, get into Harvard, one of whom goes and one goes to the University of Tennessee, and then see what, compare their career earnings. And when you equalize for the person, you can't find any difference. In other words, it's not that, that Harvard is making you earn a lot of money. It's the kind of person who gets accepted by Harvard makes a lot of money, right? And then there's an even cleverer line of thing, which there's now been like 10 studies on this, and it's so interesting, which is they now look at elite high schools. So what is the benefit of going to a selective high school? Now, intuitively, you would think it must show up. There must be some 
you must be able to see whether in test scores or the quality of the college you go to or somewhere we must see some impact of that. And we can't find, uh, we can't find any advantage. It just, everything seems to, once you do that equalization thing, um, uh, you, if you are a smart kid, in other words, it doesn't matter what school you go to. Um, you'll, you know, smart is smart. Um, which is intriguing um, finding. What do you need? Thank you. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit. Um, you know, you do a remarkable job of popularizing uh, social sciences. And uh, by the way, I forgot to introduce myself. Uh, I'm Prasad Sethi. I'm part of People Operations, and I lead the analytics group, which is composed of many social scientists. Uh, who, who love the fact that uh, Malcolm's work and uh, you know gets gets their kind of thinking into the public limelight? Um, how do you distill and aggregate all of this research that's done in the social sciences and come up with what you think are the most uh, cogent arguments? Because uh, as you mentioned, there are lots of studies done on similar topics, and some of them are. Uh, point towards one direction, others point towards a different direction, etc. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're looking for trends in the research, um, and so, for example, the studies I was just mentioning about trying to measure the value of elite schools—that's a very clear trend, and you've got a cluster of studies that have been done in the last two or three years using pretty rich data sets that are all coming to roughly the same conclusion. So when you see that, that's the sort of thing I'm looking for, is what you want to steer clear of are the one really wacky study that is sitting all by itself. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just you have to be approaching with more caution. But um, there's no shortage. I mean, the thing that's fascinating about being a sort of a student of academic research is that um, the number of things that on an academic level are being ideas that are being um, pursued and conclusions that are being drawn that are quite dramatically at odds with conventional wisdom mm -hmm. is enormous. Mm -hmm. there, if you're in the game of, in other words, looking in academic research for ways to challenge the way we think about things. There's an embarrassment of riches out there. I mean, it's not hard to do. So um, to me, what always amazes me is how much um, fascinating and useful material um, lies buried in academia. It just never sees a lot of day because no one uh, bothers to go and and write about it and popularize it. I mean, it's astounding how, then, you know, if you talk to academics, they have the list of things that they think that the rest of the world is doing long. It's like, it's like this long, right? Um, so it's like, it's, 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 it's not a very difficult process to, um, <laughs> to, to dissolve. Yeah. Um, related question, uh, you use a lot of stories to 
bring your thoughts to life. And the stories add a lot of emotional richness, and you can really connect with them. Uh, but how do you how do you ensure very very hierarchical way, or you can choose not to. Um, the other thing that it would tell you is it would it would say something about whether about the size of teams as well. I mean, it would seem to argue. I would think, um, although maybe not. It says it's really about the structure of of teams that to the extent that you can keep things that um, that are as flat as possible, I think you minimize the damage caused by um, hierarchies. Hi, thanks for coming to speak. So I just started in people operations about a month ago. And since I've been here, I've had a lot of people recommend uh, Strength Finder and other books like that. And I've taken a look at it, and I can't help but think that things like that are kind of, uh, as the great skeptic James Randi said, flim-flam, mm -hmm. um, or like modern-day uh, pseudo-social science. And I'm wondering what if you have any insight into those, because I know companies spend a lot of money buying those kinds of books for their yeah. employees. I have, uh, I have to confess I've never read any of those. I mean, I, um, I know that they're very successful. Um, in, sell, in sales or in, in what they set out to in do? In sales. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, but I, I guess I would only say it, it should, it's interesting, though, that there is such a hunger for that kind of thing. You know, people, I always say this, people are experience-rich and theory-poor, mm -hmm. that most people necessarily um, lack access to organizing principles in their life. Um, if you're not immersed in the world of academia and you don't have the leisure to produce, to follow and acquire grand theories, you don't have theories to explain things. So whenever there is someone comes along with an explanatory mechanism for something that is that you're experience rich in, it's enormously attractive. Um, so that, you know, if that's a lousy, if Strength Finder is lousy, it's incumbent on us just to come up with better and more sophisticated ways of, um, but it's, it's clear that there is a massive demand for something um, to allow people to organize their experience. Hey Malcolm, my name is Mike. Thanks for being here. Um, my question is kind of going back to the value of elite institutions again. Um, so, so you talk about how someone who goes to Harvard, someone who goes to University of Tennessee, they are intrinsically going to do the same if they're, um, you know, on the same intelligence level. So, I guess my question is, you know, you hear you're kind of the average of the five people you hang around. You surround yourself with people who are smarter than you you will naturally elevate your level. Do you believe in that, or do you believe that's kind of, you know, it seems like your theory is, is kind of uh, puts the merits towards that, you know, yeah. thought process. Well, there's a, a couple of things. One is that um, one of the implications of that argument is that there are a lot more very able people at... Um, non-elite institutions than we think. And actually, this is kind of a fascinating thing. So to take a step backwards, uh, the larger question is, how efficient are elite educational institutions um, in 
as search engines for talent. What percentage of the of qualified students do they actually uncover and and the answer is we used to think they were very efficient. What we have discovered recently is they're actually quite inefficient. In other words, enormous numbers of very, very intellectually capable people never even come close to the 250 top colleges in the country. So non-selective colleges have a much larger share of, uh, of the intellectual aristocracy than we would imagine. So that's so, so to your question, if you go to the University of Tennessee, you can find lots and lots and lots of very, very intellectually cap capable people to hang around with. And you probably will grab, if you are that kid who could have gone to Harvard, you will probably gravitate to those five. The difference being that, so you'll be surrounded by peers who may be every bit as able. The difference is that you will almost certainly be the top of your class as opposed to running the risk of being in the middle of the bottom. So you're getting two um, benefits, intellectual benefits, as opposed to maybe only one. Um, the other thing, of course, is that, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. There are many, many parallel arguments along these lines. Now, of course, not everyone can follow the strategy. If everyone does it, it ceases to work, right? <laughs> everyone can't go down a notch. Or <laughs> So the whole thing is, I, if you're going to follow the strategy, do it quick before I sell too many books <laughs> and the advantage is wiped out. But, uh, <laughs> okay, thank you. So you said in response to a previous question that it would be useful to eliminate some hierarchy so that you get rid of this problem of people being at the bottom. But how do we know that's the bigger issue as opposed to it's just a great boost to people when they are at the top? And if that was the predominating factor, then maybe we should just have more awards or more way to recognize people. Oh, I see. Oh, you mean have a kind of pretend hierarchy where you <laughs> give everyone a pat on the back? Or maybe we should have even more levels of hierarchy. Oh, I see. Well, but the, you know, the, um, so the classic study, I have to see if I got this right. The classic study in this regard, which I talk about in the book, is this famous study that was done in this, the largest psychological study ever in the United States was done during the Second World War of American soldiers. And one of the most interesting insights was a comparison of, um, uh, of commissioned officers in the Air Force, the Air Corps, the precursor to the Air Force, and commissioned officers in the military police. And the question was, who was more satisfied with, uh, um, with their promotion prospects, the openness of their uh, institution to rewarding talent? Be in this person's life and deal with this person in order to get valuable intelligence from them. Right. Because I that was super interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, for me personally, part of that's like, what's the greater good here, right? Like, maybe you're dealing with this horrible person, but what are they giving you for the greater good? I think on the other hand, like most people, so I worked with a lot of refugees and there are absolutely horrendous stories about what happens 
to people who become refugees before they become refugees, right? So you read all these horrendous stories of like child soldiers and, you know, like neighbors turning on neighbors and rape being used as a weapon of war. And you're like, like there are so many scenarios out there that the average person who lives a comfortable life does not even, like, cannot even comprehend. And when you're in a scenario where essentially every decision is, would be considered a bad decision, where, like, in your black and white, it's all black, you still have to choose. And you have to be comfortable with whatever that choice is. Like, you can't just stand there. You have to make a choice. So... You can't put everything into a good and bad bucket. There's a giant gray area of, um, you know, like if if I have to choose between, <laughs> between dealing with like some kind of horrible person who has ties to terrorism and I know that they are going to be able to give me information that stops an attack that saves 50 lives... Like, you're going to give that dude money. You're going to take him out. Like, you're going to be friends with him because he has the ability to do good on the other end, whether he knows it or not, Mm -hmm. right? Like, those are the real-life choices. That's what happens in real life. I think that when you are living... I mean, and I, I live a comfortable life. I just happen to have had the exposure, right? I think when you're living a comfortable life and you're not exposed to the, like, to the realities that are out there, it's easy to judge. It's easy to judge and be like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. Okay, well, when you are in these situations and you're standing there and you have to make the decision, let's see what your decision actually is, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to change I think your idea, like you have to shift from what's right and wrong to what is the objective, right? Especially Mm -hmm. when you're doing stuff for the, for the government, like military, CIA, um, like what is the objective here? What is the mission here? And how do you accomplish that? It's not about what do I personally think is right and wrong? How do you obtain your objective? How do you complete your mission? Because that mission is serving all of us. Like whether we know it or not, there are missions happening right now that maybe we would disagree with, but they're serving us. They're protecting us. Right. So. Yeah. I I had a one guy on here who was, uh, he was a, a drone pilot for flying those drones over Yemen, those killer drones. And he was like, he was recruited by, I believe it was the air force that was, that was heading that program. But he was said he was like nineteen years old, eighteen yeah. years old, and and they were having him pull the trigger on these drones that were blowing up, you know, people, yep. and ke- yep. him being eighteen years old, watching people get ex- you know blown up yep. in countries like Yemen or whatever, and mm-hmm. it scarred him. I mean, it really messed his head up. Yeah having to make those decisions yes. and or whether he was making the decisions or not. He's probably following orders, like right. pulling the trigger on those drones and, yep. and watching these people suffer, like on the, mm-hmm. ca- watching the infrared camera, these people yep. like crawling and bleeding and yep. 
Yeah, that and stuff so, can be terrifying to you, like to a, any any human. Right, and think about like like all the people involved in that decision, mm-hmm. right? So he was pulling the trigger, so he probably felt directly responsible. But there's a chain of command, right? There are other people making that decision. Mm-hmm. People who found that location to target, like the guy in charge who makes the decision to target it, who like people who know that that house might have the guy's kids in it. Mm-hmm. Do we target or not? Right? Like there are t- there are, there are t- 